history is an always upward, always advancing to higher levels of consciousness and justice. That's a consensus view, which I don't necessarily believe. This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminaryfm. We'd love to hear from you. Today's guest is Kimberly Crenshaw, an American civil rights advocate and legal scholar, well known for her work around intersectionality and critical race theory. She's a professor of law at Columbia Law School and UCLA. Kimberly is the director of Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies at Columbia, which she founded in 2011. She's also co-founder of the African American Policy Forum. Her work has appeared in the Harvard Law Review, the National Black Law Journal, the Stanford Law Review, and many other leading publications. In our conversation with Kimberly, we cover the state of civil rights in America, biases in the interaction between civil rights and the law, critical race theory and its critiques, the framework of intersectionality, her work with the African American Policy Forum, the Black Lives Matter and Me Too movements, and the role technology can play in the civil rights discourse. Tell us about your childhood and your journey into academia. Well, I was born and raised in a Midwest town in Canton, Ohio. Canton, Ohio was uh, an industrial center. It was known for uh, steel making, um, uh, car uh, manufacturing, uh, and it was a vibrant town during the 60s and 70s, like most uh, communities in the in the Midwest that were industrial towns um, towards the 80s and 90s, it really started losing a lot of uh, its economic uh, sustainability. So um, it is now a far smart, smaller town and in, in a poorer town uh, than when I grew up. My parents were both school teachers. My mother uh, was um, a second generation Cantonian. Her father was um, one of two black physicians in town. So she was raised as the only child of, of uh, Dr. Williams and her, um, and, and her mom, Mrs. Williams. My father uh, moved to Canton, Ohio um, as the, the son of um, Methodist uh, minister. My grandfather was uh a presiding elder in the colored Methodist Episcopal Church. So I was raised uh, in, in a family that was uh, middle class. Um, they were very uh, politically involved in the struggle for racial justice. I was born in uh, a time, you know, really before the major civil rights laws were passed. Um, in Canton, uh, there was a history of de facto segregation, although not formal uh, segregation as it was in the South. 
but the imprint of that uh, history was still very much part of my upbringing. So as my mother would take me around town, she would always be sure to tell me the stories about how she grew up in um, a segregated town, places that would attempt to make her sit um, on the side in the theater or wouldn't serve her from the same glasses in the soda fountain or wouldn't allow her to be seated um, in the restaurant. So I, I grew up with a very strong sense that the historical legacy that shaped race and racism was still very much part of um, the life that I knew and that I saw. Um, and I also grew up in, in a family that valued education. Obviously, you know, they were school teachers. Um, so uh, those two things together very much shaped my consciousness growing up, shaped my sense of uh, what was a valuable profession to uh, join and shape the kind of things that I very much was interested in. And so each of each of those formative dynamics uh, led me into uh, law school. And as I was uh, learning how to think like a lawyer, I also learned that part of thinking like a lawyer was part of the problem. So I wanted to join the legal education profession to think differently about how we train lawyers and how we think about the role of law and social justice. Would you say that your upbringing was the predominant factor in in shaping your interest for civil rights advocacy and, and law? Absolutely. I would say it was my upbringing, both in terms of, you know, the temporal dimension of it. So I, I was raised during the 60s and the 70s, and that was a period of massive social self-interrogation, massive uh, social uprising, uh, unrest, uh, rethinking, uh, challenging trying to remake what society should be and what opportunities should be distributed differently. So for a good part of my childhood, what I saw on television was civil rights protesters, anti-war protesters. I saw debates about whether our society was in need of massive social repair or whether uh, the repair had gone too far. These were all things that were um, percolating all around me. And then in the middle of that, my family was engaged in thinking through these issues and encouraging my, my brother and me to think about these things as well. So my, my, my friends used to tease us because at the dinner table, we had to talk about what we were thinking uh, about the world we were living in, what we had learned in that day, what questions we wanted to bring to the table. They were very keen on us being observers of the social world and thinkers about what we observe. So my friends used to say that we were the only family that had to study for dinner right? because <laughs> it, 
if we got called into dinner and hadn't thought about what we were going to talk about, we had to like take a minute. Like, okay, uh, what happened today? What do I think about what happened today? Um, what question do I have or what conclusions have I, have I drawn from it? So really helped me gather up a, a sensibility about the world being something that isn't just there for the you know for the taking but but it's there to be thought about it's to be interrogated and if necessary it's to be changed so i i would say that my change orientation came both from observing aspects of the world that were unfair that didn't seem to make sense that didn't line up with the claims that i was learning in school that made America, you know, special. So I, I had a sense that things weren't really the way they were supposed to be. And I guess a license or even encouragement from my family to think about, well, if it's not the way it's supposed to be, how should it be and what can you do to close that gap between the claims, the promises of what America should be and what it actually is. What is the state of civil rights in America today? And uh, how have you seen it evolving since the time you were growing up? Well, while I was growing up, the civil rights movement was in an expansive period. So uh, it was during my lifetime that the civil rights acts of the 60s were passed that actually made discrimination in employment and in voting and in housing uh, and in public um, accommodations illegal. Uh, prior to that moment, the overarching sense of the law was that individuals could use their property, particularly their, their housing property, but other uh, forms of legally protected interests in ways that discriminated against, uh, at the time, primarily uh, African Americans. So to actually have a, a, a formal repudiation of the freedom to segregate and discriminate as a legal matter was pretty much revolutionary. Uh, so I was the beneficiary of decades of struggle on behalf of both grassroots individuals and organizations and lawyers to actually shift the legal baseline, a shift in what was legally permissible and permitted to what was no longer legally permissible and permitted. So that was, you know, tremendous wave to be riding on, you know, as a child coming of age in that period. So there was great hope. There were possibilities of, you know, sort of a fundamental rethinking of our social structure. And some of the early cases of the Supreme Court suggested that this civil rights moment would be indeed uh, one in which, as one of the court cases said, um, the history of segregation, this was in schools, would be dismantled uh, and eliminated root and branch. Well, if that had in fact been the 
objective and the measurement of equality, then the promise was that we would undergo a period of time where every institution that had been formally segregated on the basis of race would be dismantled and reconstructed so that vestiges of that past would be eliminated, root and branch. That was what many of us saw to be the promise. It became fairly clear, though, um, by the end of the 70s and definitely by the time Ronald Reagan was elected and that presidency reshaped the direction of the Supreme Court, that this elimination of all vestiges of discrimination, root and branch, was not going to happen. And so what we have been living in since that period of time has been a retrenchment, a rollback, a re-articulation of what the goal of civil rights um, actually is. And now um, that goal has been re-articulated not as the elimination of any vestiges of race discrimination and segregation, but instead as the achievement of colorblindness. So colorblindness as you know, both the mediating principle and the objective uh, of civil rights has really wreaked havoc on civil rights enforcement. It has made it virtually impossible to seek meaningful school integration. It has made it impossible to achieve reasonable redistribution of public resources. And at this point, it has made it even difficult to direct attention and resources to some of the obvious ways in which our society is not colorblind. So civil rights now um, is a battleground. It's a um, rear guard sort of um, de- uh, debate to try to sustain as much of that territory that we used to have, you know, fighting against the re- the um, retrenchment and the ills that develop as we see in the society when the law gives now license to discrimination and other forms of racism to come back full force. There are biases today in our society with respect to various groups and constituencies. Those biases that exist, the source of of those, would you say they're predominantly in the existing law or is it more related to the implementation of the law or is it a confluence of both? It's confluence of both, and and beyond that, much of much of the source of the bias is embedded in our institutional practices, the things that we think are non-discriminatory, just the way we've always done things, or the way that we ought to do things, without a thought to the um, discriminatory consequences and implications of these things. So there's a, there's a whole continuum of causes for the discriminatory outcomes ranging from conscious biases, uh, implicit biases, and thoughtless practices. 
all of those play play a role in, in producing disparities and discriminatory outcomes. So, for example, the hiring in many, if not most, of industries is usually based on networks, not necessarily based on open, everyone gets a chance to know about and to apply themselves to possible job openings. It's also in many times geographic. It's where you live. It's who you know. Who you live, where you live and who you know are not race neutral experiences. They are deeply shaped and shaded by race, both historically and in contemporary terms. Now, what should be done about that? Because we know that as long as hiring practices are predicated on baselines that are also racially, you know, situated, what should we do? There are some who say, well, as long as the decisions to use these practices are not based on the intent to discriminate against people of different races, then it doesn't matter that our continuous reliance on these practices creates discriminatory outcomes. That's one position, and it's becoming the dominant position. Others say it doesn't really matter whether you have evil in your heart. If you continue to pursue uh, a mode of distributing valuable opportunities in a way that you know will predictably exclude racially distinct groups of people, that is a social harm. And that's a social harm that we should no longer pursue. We shouldn't have to have laws that tell us that. But because we're not willing to tell ourselves that and abide by that, then yes, that should be a focal point of anti-discrimination law. And that's before we even get to the weaknesses of anti-discrimination law in identifying intentional forms of discrimination and forms of discrimination that are not rational, but they still produce uh, discriminatory harms. So I, I would say that if we look around our institutions and we look around our lives and really thought hard about it, we can find many, many ways, many dynamics that continue to reproduce the social world as we know it, in which, you know, we can fairly predict who is going to occupy the CEO's office and who's going to clean it. These are not accidents. These are not unknowables. The question is what we should do about the things that we can predict, the things that we can see and the things that we know. Why do these dynamics continue to exist? Is awareness or education a challenge? Yeah, I I would say that awareness is a significant challenge in a society such as ours, in which the immediate histories that produced our society are divided into the things we want to celebrate and the things that we want to forget. And even though the things that we celebrate are closely tied to the things we want to forget, we enact this, you know, um, this wall in, in our historical memory so that we are unable to tell future generations why our neighborhoods look the way they do, why the distribution of wealth looks the way it does, 
why the question of how the criminal justice system works uh, has come to work in the way it does. So we don't like to educate our, our, our community and our society about the full picture. And that in turn creates a vacuum of explanation. And where there's a vacuum of explanation, people fill it in with folklore, with racist ideas uh, to try to make sense of it. So one of the major moments in my civil rights class is when we talk about how suburbs um, were constructed as white spaces and ghettos were constructed as non-white spaces. Now, if you don't know that the federal government spent over billions and billions of dollars creating suburbs, creating fast-moving highways to facilitate workers living in suburbs and uh, working um, somewhere else. If you don't know that those suburbs were constructed and the federal government allowed developers to discriminate and only make these new developments available to white people. If you don't know that the same cost for buying a mortgage in, say, Levittown, New York in the 1950s was the same as paying for a rundown apartment in a ghetto in New York, if you don't know that, then you don't know that the second and third generation that has been able to benefit from being able to buy a home in a white-only area, send their kids to college, take care of their parents in old age, buy another house. If you don't know that that advantage was racially distributed, and if you don't know what happens to the family that wasn't able to invest and only was able to put money into rundown apartments in which they never gained equity. So they weren't able to send their kids to school and they weren't able to withstand economic crises. So they got pushed further down the economic ladder. If you don't know this stuff, then you look around the United States and think that people who live in under-resourced communities are themselves people with deficits. And people who live in nicely appointed you know, neighborhoods just deserve that because they worked harder. So if you don't know the history of how our society was constructed, then you default to explanations that reinforce the idea that some racial groups of people are just more talented and more capable than others. And so any effort to deal with the consequences of that of that disparity appear to be reverse discrimination, appear to be, you know, giving handouts uh, rather than correcting for the handouts that were already given that created this racial disparity in the first place. What could existing legislative bodies in the U.S. do to improve the status quo? Oh, my goodness. Well, it could start, first of all, um, by guaranteeing minimum income for everyone, regardless of the reasons for the wealth disparities. That, That would raise the life circumstances of people across the board. I would say, you know, secondly, legislatures could create 
far more robust legal rights against the use of policies and practices that predictably will produce racially disparate outcomes. That is something that legislatures, particularly Congress at one point, uh, created Title VII and Title VII was interpreted to provide protections against employment policies that disparately impact groups without a good reason. Right. So, you know, the use of a of a civil service exam to hire police officers when virtually nothing on that civil service exam has anything to do with whether you are uh, a capable police officer of policing a multiracial you know, environment in which you don't always resort to physical force and coercion in order to effectively um you know, perform your job. We don't have investments in skills, uh, skill determination that actually is non-discriminatory. Legislatures could do a whole lot more um, to create incentives for distributing jobs based on doing them well, as opposed to objective criteria that have nothing to do with how you actually do jobs. The legislatures could do far better at ensuring equitable distribution of resources from public education to public space. You know, go to uh, almost any under-resourced community and ask where people go for leisure and exercise and, and just to be part of the community. And you'll see that there are huge disparities in how public dollars are actually spent. That is not a necessary outcome. It is something that's permitted rather than prohibited. So a lot could be done about that. And then I think on, on the broader economic end of things, we could have far more progressive taxation policies. We could have policies that are far more attentive to the massively disparate levels of compensation between the top of the corporate ladder and the very bottom. We don't need to live in a society where our corporate chiefs make 200, 300, 1,000 times more than the lowest paid person in the workforce. We don't need to have that kind of intense aggregation uh, of wealth and an ever never ending upward distribution. People don't talk about that in the society. We spend more time looking down rather than looking up. So efforts to redirect our attention to some of the consequences of massive wealth disparity could make a huge, huge difference in addressing some of the social ills that seem to now function without any solution in sight. There exists societal systems that could lead to people getting into a mental chain, say the caste system in India. Could you speak to the negative implications when such a thing happens? Right. So are, are you speaking in terms of internalized oppression or normalized dominance? So it's like from the perspective of the 
the cast, the, the low cast person, for example, there's whether the practices and expectations that um, shape one's psyche are so deeply embedded that um, the, the contours of one's life seem to be normal. And you don't even challenge it. So there, there's there's a way of thinking of of that from the internalization of the hierarchy. And then there's a way of thinking about it in terms of the normalization of those who, you know, think nothing of imposing the most egregious burdens on people because society has told you that it is intended, it is written, it is, you know, part of the deeper logics of you know, our very existence that some people exist for abuse and other people um, have been, you know, um, given the right to inflict that abuse. I mean, I, I, I would say that across the board, when we live in societies, whether it's, you know, post-slavery, uh, post-genocidal societies or uh, caste societies, um, there is an element of daily life that makes many people acclimate to intolerable situations or unjust situations that they then rationalize. Racism is a huge rationalization for an economic system that was based on absolute dehumanization. Caste is a huge rationalization for a, a social structure that it has existed for millennia that normalizes deep, deep, deep systems of subordination and abuse. It is almost a Herculean effort for people who are deeply embedded in these systems to actually rethink them. And it's a challenge for both the people on the bottom as well as the top. I would say that the miracle of the 20th century has been that people on the bottom have galvanized to repudiate all the logics that told them that they deserve to be there. And that's an amazing thing when when the education system tells you you deserve to be there, when the culture tells you you deserve to be there. And in, and both historically in the U.S. And, and also in India, when the dominant religion tells you you deserve to be there, to actually have as a group the chutzpah to say, actually, the received wisdom of our subordination is actually wrong. It's false. It is actually part of our subordination to be able to step outside of that system and to see yourself not through the eyes that have been given to you by the society that's already subordinated you, but to see yourself through eyes from a society that doesn't yet exist. <laughs> one, one in which people like you are viewed as fully human. People like you are viewed as people who have the same rights as everyone else. People like you are not viewed as suspect or less than or expendable. To be able to imagine yourself from a societal position that has not yet come into being, that's, that's the miracle 
of creativity. It's the miracle of thinking outside of the context in which you were born. It is the miracle that pushes societies away from myth and oppression to being able to embody the deepest aspirations um, that um, societies often hold out but often deny. Let's talk about critical race theory. You've been a major contributor to its development. What is it and uh, why does it matter? Well, critical race theory is a system of critical interrogation of racial power, uh, initially in the United States, but more broadly, you know, across the world. There are critical projects that interrogate, challenge, social systems of subordination around the world. There's even a a critical caste theory that has come out of the collaboration between uh, critical race theorists and and, and folks in, in, you know, South Asia. The basic foundation of critical race theory was in the period of the 80s when the expansive civil rights project was beginning to recede. And in that process of receding, it became clear that there were ways that the law was continuing to function in ways that produced racial harms, but fell outside of what folks then saw as anti-discrimination. So critical race theory understands that law is Uh, um, sort of two-faced. It both produces racial harms, both historically and in contemporary America, and at the same time, uh, partially regulates those harms that it has produced. So critical race theory is an effort to unpack and to demystify what many people cannot see in the way that the law functions. So, for example, um, the law has played a role in defining and categorizing what race is and who, who race is, who is what race. Um, it's not simply a referee, as many people think. For example, um, if we think of uh, social competition as a ball game, um, many people see the law as the institution that that you know serves as the referee that says that's foul, you can't do that, um, that's a legitimate thing you can do. So the law is thought as unbiased in competition between you know different groups, and they just call the shots as they see it. In reality, though, law isn't just the referee. Law is actually constituting the teams. It's determining who is on what team. It's determining what equipment you get to use in the in the game and what equipment you don't. It determines who wins, who loses. So these asymmetries uh, between racial groups aren't just natural. They're largely produced by legal rules that determine what group you're in and that determine what it means to be racialized in a particular way. So critical race theory is basically 
uh, trying to tell a truer picture about how race functions in American society and what role law plays in that functioning. Its ultimate objective is to think more expansively about what equality then would really mean. So if we understand that race has been largely constituted through legal rules, then to simply say, okay, well, the solution is to ignore it, that doesn't that doesn't dismantle that which the law has produced. It just allows it now to continue to function without any commentary. So colorblindness is an inadequate response to a fuller understanding of how law actually functions. So that's partly what critical race theory does and why it's important is that if we don't have an accurate understanding of how race has functioned in American society, we're not able to see how it continues to shape our world. And if we can't see how it continues to shape our world, we're pretty much stuck with the world that exists. And I think, broadly speaking, there are very few people in in this country who are perfectly happy with the current state of, of things, but are often lost as to how to go about rethinking our society. So critical race theory offers tools to assist in that important project. What have been the major critiques of the critical race theory? Well, major critique is that it it's about race. So we live now in a society that encounters and gives some legitimacy to the idea that the best way not to be racist is not to talk about race. Um, the best way to get beyond our past is to act as though we are beyond our past or that our past no longer shapes our contemporary society. So with that logic, anything that attends to race by by some um, is a racist project and and you know the the most the most simplistic examples of it are when a reporter asked our president whether he was concerned about whether his language about nationalism gave support and comfort to white racists to white nationalists and rather than answering the question he called the question racist. Just think about that. There is a problem of racism in this country. There's a problem of growing racial violence in this country. The the numbers have skyrocketed in the last two years. To talk about that and to ask whether there is any concern at the highest levels of our government the presidency in contributing that, to that. To even talk about that is to be denounced as racism. So if you have a simplistic moment like that, you want to talk about racism, you're being racist. If that flies, then imagine what a project, an intellectual project that looks most more, more deeply at how an important institution like the law can function in ways to produce and insulate racial power, how will that be framed in, in a society that is 
you know, that permits the president to say that a, that a legitimate question is racist. So it, it's kind of, you know, it's like rolling the ball down the hill to say that a project that tries to unpack racism is itself racist. That's where we've gotten to. Now, let me add this to it. There are lots of other ways that we in our society have contributed to um, this um, I, I think it's an insanity. There's language that we frequently use that, that in some ways functions to say that to demand accountability for these issues is to take rights away from people. So the use of political correctness as a critique has now grown to uh, apply to almost any claim about accountability um, to uh, eliminate racism, accountability to make our social systems and our uh, companies more diverse. This is often called politically political correctness that apparently everybody believes is a bad thing. Well, think twice about how this term is being used, what is what it's disabling and what it's what it is actually facilitating. I'd say playing the race card. That's another you know sort of common thing that people say now. Often they say it when people say there's a racial problem here. Oh, you're playing the race card. There are not many games that uh, people who have the card of being a, a subject to racism can win at. Playing the race card is basically a way of silencing concerns, legitimate concerns about racial inequality. Any other critiques? Oh, well, we could go on for days. <laughs> we could go on for days. Um, I, I would say overall, is there still a need for an intellectual and political project that pays attention to race. And, you know, there are those who say that, you know, race is a social construct. So to even talk about it is to maintain it. Um, and so therefore, you know, critical race theory and other uh, projects that rely on ideas that are simply productions of, of social discourse um, uh, isn't a good idea. Um, our, our response to that is that race, of course, is not natural. That doesn't keep it from being materially salient, right? So yes, race is not real. And yet people have died because of the race that they are thought to be. So we don't you know, repudiate laws to protect us against racial violence simply because the thought that a particular person is racially distinct from you is scientifically untrue. It's not the thought that's the problem. It's the actions that are the problem. It's the material dimensions of what it means to be racialized as a non-white person in a country that has a history, frankly, of, of white dominance. These are real problems, even though race itself is not real. And people often get these things confused. How do you think one could best strike a balance between being race and gender conscious versus the line? I think a lot of folks would prefer to employ a, or apply the notion of a veil of ignorance, meaning 
<laughs> gender, race shouldn't be taken into account at all. We're all equals. What do you think about that notion? Yeah. Part of what I've been talking about is the fact that we are not unconscious of race and gender. We perform it, but we are not. Everything that we now know about implicit uh, cognitive processing, everything tells us that we are not colorblind, nor are we genderblind. We fill in the blanks often when we encounter people of, of, of particular races or people of particular gender. So the first thing is, it is a myth to think that our society and our folks as individuals are uh, colorblind and genderblind. We're just not. Second of all, what does it mean we should do about that? So some people think, well, we, we should pretend that we are even if we're not. And if we pretend that we are, then that's a, that's a strike in the right direction. I would rather us be concerned about the biases that we bring to our race and gender consciousness because the biases are the problem. It's not, I don't mind anybody noticing that I'm African-American or that I'm a woman. In fact, I don't want them not to. I'm proud of being both those things. What I don't want is the attribution of negative assumptions that go along with the noticing of my race and my gender. And that's the, that's the more significant problem. What are the elements of, um, disadvantage that go along with what happens when race and gender are acknowledged? And that is, frankly, where the problem comes. That's where the discrimination comes. So if you want to know, you know, what do you do to strike the balance? The balance is, you know, blackness shouldn't be used as a proxy for all the things that it is a proxy for in American society. Lack of intelligence, um, uh, lack of, uh, um, you know, working hard. Uh, abiding by the rules, loving one's children, being um, creative. All of these things are, are things that are not uh, positively associated with blackness. So if we want to strike a balance, take that off of the deficit side of the line. And I would say, you know, the same with women. Women are are subjected to a whole range of assumptions that go along with a patriarchal society's view of what women are for. Strike a balance? Well, the balance is to bring women up from being underneath the baseline of all things that are positive that are associated with men. So the, so I think, I think people have conflated the negativity that's associated specifically with racial pariah groups and with women with noticing that they are members of these groups. And what we need to do is be able to distinguish when we are attributing net negative characteristics to groups and when we are simply noticing these groups. And it also, you know, quite frankly, means that we need to be aware of the fact that we are often not aware of the fact that we have um, attributed negative 
thoughts to individuals. Many times we can't even remember that we've done it. So it means we have to have employment practices and other institutional mechanisms to make up for the fact that we know we can't see certain things or we can't remember certain things. So I'll I'll give you an, an example. Let's say that a boss has two employees. One employee is just like him, shares the same you know, social, uh, gender, race attributes, and the other one is completely different. So let's say the boss is a white male and the the, one of the employees is a white male and the other one is a black woman. Let's say that the black woman comes in late, three out of five days in a month. He believes that she's just chronically late because that's just, you know, how people like her are. And so she gets a demerit for it. Let's say next month, the guy that looks like him comes in late too, same amount of time. What will his attribution of causality be? Well, a lot of the science tells us that for people that are like us, we tend to interpret negative uh, performance in terms of the context, the situation, not in terms of who they are, because they are like us. So when it's someone like us, the tendency is, well, you know, let's see what we can do to fix this problem. Uh, do we need to time shift um, his start hours? Do we need to figure out some other way of making it possible for him to perform at the level that I know he can perform? It's often called attribution error. It may be that he doesn't even remember the fact that his the person like him comes in late because he doesn't have a file in his head for negative kinds of work behaviors that aren't associated with people like this guy. But he's got a huge file for the black woman because he's got a whole, you know, file cabinet with folders of possible things that might go wrong for her and a very small file cabinet for possible things that might go right for her. Now, this isn't a product of intentional bias. It's just the way that our society has shaped our understanding about race and gender, people like us, people not like us. So rather than seeing these things primarily in terms of goodwill, you know, are you a good person? We have to see these as systemic problems that require systemic solutions, which is not the same thing as saying, you know, see no evil, say no evil, there will be no evil. There will be evil in terms of bad outcomes. We just have to figure out ways of addressing that without getting our feelings all caught up in it, which is many times what happens. You have been a vocal voice in highlighting discrimination and disadvantages faced by African-American women. You introduced intersectionality theory back in the 1980s. What is intersectionality and how is it significant? Intersectionality is a prism for addressing the ways that racism, sexism, homophobia, uh, ableism, different forms of discrimination often interact with each other and in that interaction produce certain social harms to individuals and to and to society as a whole 
that frequently are not acknowledged because we have a single issue mentality about discrimination and and inequality. So intersectionality simply uh, calls us to pay attention to what happens when different forms of subordination actually come together. What kinds of um, what kinds of injuries are produced? What kinds of people are injured when these different forms of subordination come together? And how are our social practices of equality making inadequate to address discrimination like this when it comes together? So it just tells us that if we're really committed um, as feminists or really committed as anti-racist, we have to follow the forms of discrimination beyond the more obvious subjects to those who actually are further downstream and are being impacted by other forms of discrimination at the same time. So one of the signature projects that my organization, the African American Policy Forum, addresses is police violence against African-American women. Now, it is a classic kind of intersectional problem, both because some of the things that make black women vulnerable are uh, based on who they are and where and how they encounter the police. So black people as a whole are more likely to encounter police than white people, when you have a higher rate of encounter of police, that expands the possibilities for those encounters to become violent. Black people are more likely to be treated violently um, than, than white people. Black women are far more likely to be treated violently than white women. Black women are more likely than any other group of women to be killed while unarmed. Um, and these are all parts of race and, and gender vulnerability that come together. So that's a, that's an intersectional problem in the making. It's also an intersectional problem in terms of our equality based practices. So, you know, there's been a movement to elevate violence against women and to intervene. But that movement uh, about uh, addressing violence against women doesn't deal with violence when it's state violence. It doesn't deal with interpersonal violence when the, the, the offenders are police officers. It doesn't deal with sexual violence when the assailant is a police officer. It turns out that um, this kind of violence is the second most common complained about violence, but it's not very central in the way that we think about violence against women. And it's also not very central in the way that we think about police violence more broadly. So, you know, we know the names of Michael Brown and Eric Garner, those who are really deeply invested in this issue, understand that these are quintessential cases of police brutality. We don't know the names of Michelle Cousseau, Tanisha Anderson, I could go on, you know, India Kager. Um, these are all black women who were also killed by the police around the same time that 
you know, highly publicized men were killed by the police. So we have a, a problem in the fact that when we talk about a particular issue like police violence, we see it almost exclusively as something that impacts men. And we don't see it as something that impacts women. As a consequence, what happens when black women, you know, are killed is that fam- the families are mourning both the loss of their loved ones, but also the loss of the story as something that communities would rally around and lift up their cases as another example of why we need to really get this problem under control. So, I mean, imagine what it's like to, to lose someone to police violence and then you know, their names are never mentioned when the debate turns to what are we going to do about this epidemic? It's like it's not an epidemic if it happens to be black women. So Say Her Name is a is a project, a campaign that we started about four years ago to include the names of black women who are killed by the police along with the names of black men. It is intersectional activism, drawing attention to those bodies and those issues that fall between the cracks of our movements and our consciousness. What are your views on the Black Lives Matter and Me Too movements? Well, both of those movements, I think, are immensely important ways of re-raising issues that historically have been part of the social justice arsenal and have in various ways been eclipsed by either denial or ways of shoring up the perpetrators of these problems so that they've largely gone unaddressed. I think in both of these uh, movements, the technology of the contemporary moment contributed to one of the conditions of the of its its possibility. So you know, police brutality has been around um, you know in this country since its form, particularly racialized police brutality. But, you know, the issue for many, many years has been, you know, the fact that there are conflicting eyewitness accounts. People believe the police. The police have largely been given wide and broad discretion uh, to do whatever they say they need to do to protect themselves. I think social media has brought the immediacy of many of these uh, moments uh, to awareness. And in the cases where they're actually videotaped, people are able to bring their own interpretation to uh, many of these circumstances. Now, it doesn't solve it. It doesn't end it. It just takes the issue to another level or another layer of debate. Uh, but at least it means that there is a debate, which has not always been the case when it comes to police violence. And I would say the same thing about, you know, Me Too, sexual harassment and exploitation of power is everywhere. And partly because it was everywhere, the sense that it was just a normal fact of life contributed to its longevity and almost impenetrability, if that's a word, <laughs> contributed to the to the 
security that many abusers felt that they had to continue to do that, even to not even see it as abuse. So I think it's remarkable that in such a short period of time, something that has just been a way of life for so long has turned into a deeply, deeply contested set of you know social practices. And so I think that, again, social media helped make it possible for, you know, millions of women to say, hey, you know, that that happened to me, too. And it be heard um, by millions of people. So, you know, there's a lot that social media did over the last you know several years that that hasn't been great. I think these are two things that were partially facilitated by by new our new capacity to communicate in real time um, and to recognize in that communication that some of the things that we're experiencing or we think happens are not individual or isolated, but are part of broader, wider social patterns. Could you add to that as to how technology has played a role or can play a role in aiding change? and making a difference? Well, I, I, I think that what I've just, I, I think technology's capacity to actually make, bridge the gap between the experience of, at an individual level and societal conscious awareness that these are not just individual experiences, but these are things that are happening right now in real time to millions of people, you know, that that's a precondition for transformation that earlier periods of time, you know, would have taken, you know, decades to queue up to actually present as a system wide culture wide problem. So just being able to frame a problem is something that technology has helped make possible. I, I think outside of that, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, not a, a techie person. I'm just like any other consumer that's constantly reading about how developers and, and people who are more creative in thinking about how to apply technology to social problems are doing so. I do firmly believe that there are um, ways of mobilizing existing uh, technological know-how to do a better job at addressing some of these social problems. I think the question truly is, is there will to do so both at, at an industrial level and at a wider political level? And number two, how, how well suited is the current makeup of the tech industry to prioritize these social justice problems and help lead the development of technological applications to address them. So, you know, I think this is uh, a, a question of the inputs much more than whether the outputs are possible. I think the outputs are definitely possible. How do you approach your work? 
are there any theories or mental models you rely upon i am as i said a critical race theorist and so we have you know many concepts about uh racial injustice that shape how we look at certain kinds of social problems but i would say the most foundational dimension of what i do is that um i think from 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 context up uh from social problem up through the way that that social problem is misinterpreted or ignored or rationalized or legitimized so my my thinking is from observable phenomenon in the world to where does this problem show up or not to why is it not showing up if it isn't or how is it being distorted if it's showing up in a way that doesn't fully give picture accurate picture to to why that problem is important and then finally so what adjustments have to be made in the way we see the way we conceptualize our norms and how we intervene so i get i guess if if anything um um you know i'm a i'm a bottom up thinker um theories that are that circulate like that you know um we move from the observable world outward is are 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 part of the apparatus that i tend to find most useful Let's shift to some more rapid fire style questions if mm-hmm. if you will what motivates you uh social injustices that require attention how do you allocate your time oh wow um not well i just work in until my body says i have to stop and then uh the moment when i become conscious i jump up again and 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 go at it i would i would say you know maybe it it it's useful to just think about it this way i have two academic appointments and uh, a nonprofit organization and a think tank so i juggle a lot and try to do cross platform work so that much of much of what i do is integrated so many of the things that i work on in the social justice arena like say her name eventually finds its way into my classroom things that we discover and talk about in my classroom will find its way into some of the practice so i try to allocate time in 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 ways that are more efficient but in all honesty i probably just work a lot which non consensus views do you hold near and dear history is an always upward always advancing to higher levels of consciousness and justice that's a consensus view which i don't necessarily believe what's the biggest trade off in your professional existence <laughs> leisure <laughs> lack of yes 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 lack, lack, lack of leisure my my friends tell me that even my vacations are working vacations which is true every every year we have a social justice writers retreat in the grill jamaica 
and we bring 15 to 25 people there to work on, you know, their projects. I consider it a vacation. Everybody else thinks that's crazy. What's uh, captivating your um, interest? Any books, articles, papers you've recently read and that really resonated with you? Well, I am currently reading Michelle Obama's book as my leisure book. I love, love, love Kate Mann's book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. She's got a term that circulated during the Kavanaugh hearings called empathy, which I, I love terms that capture complicated ideas. And so Kate Mann's term empathy captured why so many people, when they see a man in distress, or, or in particular, you know, crying, are, are much more likely to embrace him, even if they might think that he did what he was accused of doing, then they are likely to embrace women who they think might be telling the truth. So I, I really like these kinds of concepts and, and, and books that take an idea and really it's sort of like a, a, a Rubik's, not a Rubik's cube, but it's sort of like a prism and you can see new insights in things that you see all the time. What projects are you currently working on? I am currently finishing up my own book on intersectionality that is a collection of my essays over the last 30 years with introductions that try to articulate what the significance of the articles might be today and how they were situated in the time that I originally wrote them. And how can listeners learn more about your work and what you're up to? They can follow me on Twitter at Sandy Locks. They can check out my organization's website, which is the African American Policy Forum. And that's at www.aapf.org. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization, company or management they may be associated with. And thank you for listening.